we have a return visitor today, uh, someone who uh, has recently won the Miles Franklin, although she doesn't want it mentioned. It is Sophie Laguna. So, Sophie, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, David. It's lovely to be here. Now, you've got a grin on your face a mile wide about the Miles <laughs> no, Franklin. No, no, it's not that I don't want it mentioned. It's just that... When it comes to talking about the book, it's the technicalities of the writing, I suppose, the craft of writing that um, interests me so much more. It, it, I'm thrilled about the Miles Franklin. Please don't get me wrong, but it's easier to talk about character than it is to talk about awards. I think, I think the publisher would be rather pleased. I mean, it would add to the sales. But the book is called The Eye of the Sheep. Mm. What an unusual title. It is an unusual title, and it wasn't one of those titles that comes straight away. Sometimes a title is there before the first, you know, as the first draft begins, there is the title. This one came when I knew the various themes and motifs that wove their way through the book, um, I was more familiar with them. So this one might have come halfway through or even at the end of the first draft. I was looking for a title and um, this idea of the sheep's eye and the light in the eye of the sheep um, was there from the start. That light, I think, is the light for Jimmy Flick, the narrator of the book. It is the light of both eternity and warning and promise and death and and when my character Jimmy suffers a terrible loss it becomes the light of hope as well as the light of Ah, oh, look, it, it's so many things functioning all at the same time so it, yes it is a mysterious title and it is dense with meaning and it it, it fitted. What can I say? <laughs> that. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, Publisher Not have um, sort of can pride itself on uh, having picked a, picked a winner because, Jan, <laughs> Jan you did. interviewed Sophie so, earlier yeah. in the year. And I, well, it was last year, actually. It was. Yes, it? it was. Yeah. Yes. And I just knew when I read this book, it was just a standout. I could not believe how you got into the mind of such a boy. You know, and to sort of see what he saw, see how life took him. You know, Jan, I wish I had some very sophisticated, layered answer for you about how I got into his voice. But but the truth is his voice was very natural to me. So, And, of course, as the book grew, so did the complexity of that voice and I knew him better and better, but... But but he was there quite naturally, and I suppose I'm, you know it had to have worked that way. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do it. It wasn't it wasn't an intellectual or, or technical task. Um, shaping the book, of course, was, but accessing his voice was instinctive, and and natural to me. Now, the the word autistic has been used in terms of the the character, but you don't like that label. I do, I don't I don't think I like any labels mm. really, and. Um, He's full of contradictions, like all of us. And recently I heard um, in a radio interview on another community radio station that this saying, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. So, in other words, there's no um, standard set of symptoms that you can, you know, that you can put someone in a box, especially not Jimmy. Mm. And... um, and there's still a great deal of mystery and so much that is unknown about about this this part of the spectrum. So no, I never, I don't think of him that way. No. Well, the key word there is spectrum. And yeah, I that's think it. We all fall along a 
That's somewhere. It. Yeah, we do. And grow through it. And and having taught boys, you notice they actually uh, go through a progression from very concrete, um, and some of them never reach the sort of abstraction ability and, and emotional um, quotient that others have. But That's your, very interesting. your yeah. character does, and, and in many ways um, teaches his father sort of thing. What can you tell us there? I think in, in many ways Jimmy teaches everybody, t- t- teaches everybody in mm. his family. Um, and, and I don't want to give, give away too much in the mm. story, but at the same time as being a boy who, who is bewildered by his world and who struggles with his circumstances, he is also knowing beyond his years and he's intuitive. And um, perhaps without being conscious of it, he does know all sorts of things about the emotional, um, the emotional landscape of his family. Well, talking about landscape, how important was it to set it both back in 1980 and also in the western suburbs? So um, I chose 1980 because uh, there was less known about various learning difficulties in the school environment. There were fewer teachers' aides. I mean, there weren't teachers' aides. Many more children um, slipped through the cracks and, and Jimmy would have been, I'm sure, one of those boys. Um, I didn't. I didn't want as much... Um, I didn't want as much technology. I didn't want the internet because I I needed the family that he lived in to be uh, more separated from from the rest of the world perhaps. Um, And the landscape became increasingly important, the physical landscape of the suburb of Altona. So I wrote, I'm sure I wrote about 20,000 words of the book before we moved to Altona to rent in Altona for two years. The rest of the book I wrote when I lived there and I was absolutely... um, blown away by by that suburb and um, the way that industry sat alongside of nature and what a what a compelling tension that that created in me and then on the page it it, it worked perfectly for my story some of what you've been saying is, and what you've uh, alluded to the technicality of writing which is where you preface some of your remarks but also then 20,000 words etc the process then that you've been through to write this um, what was discarded in some ways? What did you have to add? What was what was involved in the process of getting this book together? The book, the process was also shaped um, by the fact that I have um, I had at the time an eighteen month old child. <laughs> so this shaped helped shape shape what kind of a writing process it was, and not in a negative way by by any means. Um, th- it meant that I had to work in very short and furious bursts. Um, I was consistent, but I was my time at the at the the writing was always limited, which is quite a useful a, a useful thing if you're a writer like me. Not not for everybody. I've heard other women talk about how much they miss the long contemplative hours to write in which to write and long contemplative hours <laughs> to me it sounds like torture. And so I'm so glad this is going to sound terrible. I don't have long contemplative hours which I have to fill. You know, I might have. 50 minutes so they are a very charged distilled concentrated 50 minutes and that's how the book happened in short 
bursts, consistent bursts. I'm very obsessed with word counts. So mm. that's why I knew exactly how many words I'd written before we moved to Altona. And then what you've had to discard, the the, the other practical side of, of structuring a novel and discarding material, editing material, Not an drafting. enormous amount was discarded. That's not my style, not, not on the whole. No, no. Um, and also... Because I knew my character so well, he he structured a lot of the work. I would have I had a I had a basic outline, and I'm I'm very sort of um, I, I plot along and write myself a ten point plot line as if I'm in, still in primary school. And I so I need to have a map, a, a, a simple enough map for myself to follow, and I'm I work towards that end. And I take little, um, you know, pathways, unpredictable things happen along the way, but I'll basically know where I'm headed very, very early on. So, Sophie Lukuna, you ruled your character. Your character did not rule did, you. Did, let's see. Let's see. Is that... Uh, is is that what it sound is that what it's sounding well, like? A lot of pe- a lot of authors mm-hmm. say that they get inside a character and the character sort of d- determines the plot. He didn't deter- no, I ha- I had him a plot from the from from the outset. I knew who had to be saved and who had to be lost and uh that that was always that that stayed pretty much on track from the beginning. Um, yes, yeah, so maybe maybe I do rule him. How interesting. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that in those terms before. Well, we'll let you go away and contemplate that for your next novel. Uh, my guest today, Sophie Laguna, a Miles Franklin Award winner, and the book is The Eye of the Sheep. Thank so, you. Thanks, Jan. Thanks, Jan. Thanks, Jan. Over Thanks, to you. Bye-bye. Well, I've got a very different author. I've got a, a different writer, I'm sure. Of course it's a different author. It's Lucy Trelaw. <laughs> it's Hi. not Sophie Laguna at all. Welcome. Welcome to 3CR's, uh, Lucy. Thank you, Jan. Lovely to talk now, to you. Now, we're talking about landscapes with uh, Sophie, and there's some landscapes in Australia that I know about, but I've never been to because they're either too hard to get there or there's nothing much to see. The Coorong, Coorong, Coorong in South Australia is one such of these landscapes until I read Salt Creek. Lucy Trelaw, you've made that place a little bit more, oh, not welcoming, but interesting. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, it's a landscape that I first visited only maybe four or five years ago and it immediately had an amazing resonance for me. Um, it's known it has a kind of mythical quality in my family um, as a place where my great 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 grandfather settled in the 1850s it's a kind of a long peninsula called the young husband peninsula which is rolling sand dunes huge rolling sand dunes that face the southern ocean and then a narrow lagoon and then the mainland of australia so it's it's this wildness and then shelter and thank you for putting in the map ah <laughs> yes but there is part of this coastline which is quite white. What's that? It's the it's called the limestone coast, and the entire coast is uh, it's made up of limestone in various forms. Some of it sort of disintegrating, some of it in big kind of cliff formations, and it varies along quite a stretch of the coast of South Australia. And it's an incredibly popular tourism destination mm. just because of its beauty. Although, and and all of this limestone comes from opened up shells and um, discarded cockles and oyster shells and everything. And although the area looks inhospitable, it was visited every summer. 
for, for thousands of years. It was. In fact, it occurred to me the other day that people have been going to the beach for summer in Australia for, you know, 40,000 years or more. Um, yeah, it was probably home for the Naranjeri for about half of each year and for the other half of the year they'd go inland. It was very subject to... Um, flooding in the winter. It was much wetter land in yeah. those days. And they, of course, had names for a lot of the beach areas, you know, where yeah. they caught their fish or, you know, eels mm. or all of these things which have been lost in time. But, of course, your great-grandfather was one of the settlers who moved in and changed the habitat. He did. Um, and it, it's interesting that People change landscape in ways that they don't really expect and they don't understand the impacts that they have. But um, just things like cattle farming, the cattle would walk through and despoil all of the water sources that the Naranjeri, the local tribes, um, relied on. And things like that and fencing, preventing the Naranjeri from burning off land mm. just and the they killed wildlife as well so they hunted kangaroos to the point where they were no longer there um, so we know that your background is in this area your family background but it's the fictionalized story of the Finch family Hester's mother told stories to her family of her own life in England genteel and social but it's Hester who's doing the reverse now. She's living the genteel life in England, 34 years old, and remembering her very different life back in Salt Creek. Hester was 15 when she first came to the Coorong. Her father and her two older brothers had been just before to build a house. Set the scene of that house. <laughs> oh, well, it's quite a, an arrival. when they, they, they travel for days from Adelaide, which is very civilised, about 20 years old at that stage, down the long, long stock route to get to this house. And Hester imagines that it will be something like their house in Adelaide. She can't imagine that it would be any different. And that's a very prosperous sort of house. But they come down a long track um, late in the afternoon, the light's growing quite dim and they arrive at this timber door and she thinks it's the stable and they're just going to, you know, drop off one of their horses that they've got with them. And her father gets down, Papa gets down from it and says, can I help you down? And she realises at that moment that this is her new home, this thing that looks like a stable. And yes, it's a devastating moment for her. <laughs> it's not just Hester. Who's... Who's the family? Uh, it's quite a big family. Uh, there, there are two boys, Hugh Stanton, then Hester, Fred, Albert, Al Albert and Addie. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and a baby, Mary. Yes. yes. Well, the story of Hester living there is that she lives over there for about seven years. That's right. Yeah. And the, the visitors in this time... <laughs> Two policemen, um, some musicians for one night and uh, the Bradshaw father and son Charles who yes. plays an important part in the role and the closest female neighbour was 10 miles away. Uh, she was the proprietor of a hotel but Hester's mother didn't think that she was suitable company and only visited once. Why was that? Well, Hester's mother grew up in very, very well-to-do circumstances in England and um, I suppose she would have been regarded as 
very upper middle class to upper class mm. and Adelaide and South Australia generally is very class conscious and you can see where this comes from whenever you visit there. Um, yeah, the woman who runs the hotel is an Irish woman. Irish? Yes. Oh, and not only is she Irish but she grew up in a poor house and there was a wave of migration of Irish orphans around that time. Um, men kind of agents went round to the poorhouses to find suitable girls to, to come to Australia to work as maids. And uh, this person is one of those maids. Well, this social snobbery, we'll call it, or unease, now it differed with Hester's father's view. He thought all men were created equal. How did he enforce this with the local Aborigines? Well, he desperately wanted to create connection initially between the between his family and the Aborigines. And um, one of the ways he did this was befriending a young Naranjeri boy called Tull. And Tull ends up living with the family, with the Finch family, and being educated alongside them. And he deliberately wants him to be a kind of conduit between the cultures. Um, uh, but it's very interesting how... His views change eventually, that there is a point at which his principles fail. Oh, yes. Look, um, Hester, of course, is remembering back about this seven years at Salt Creek. And some of the most incredible writing, I think, by Lucy Trelaw was the uh, descriptions of the removal of the potty calf from the mother so that the mother can be milked to make the cheese and the slaughter of this calf to get rennet from its stomach to make the cheese. Look, that was incredibly researched. Or did you just know that, Lucy? <laughs> well, I sort of knew it and then um, it came back in, in an edit, like we need to know a little bit more about this and it's strange the things you end up Googling. And there's only one stomach in, in a calf that you can use. There are four, four stomachs, yeah. but there's a particular stomach that contains the rennet, that's why. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's awful. <laughs> and, and the other thing that I thought, you know, it was reading it was gruesome but fascinating at the same time is one time Hester has to stitch up her brother's forehead from a really deep, severe cut. Mm. And she's sort of thinking, should I use running stitch or cross stitch? <laughs> yes, she's so ill-prepared for such an event. Yeah, I, I asked a, a medical friend of mine what would be the right thing to do and she said, not cross stitch, that would be very bad. <laughs> But it looked neater. Yes. <laughs> of course, for them to escape this horrible, horrible time, this time of solitude and um, and poverty, is they have to make the place a success. So they're all working incredibly hard. And it's just the ongoing oh, severity of the uh, landscape and also the solitude, just having themselves to, to entertain. Yes, I think, it, and it actually must have been terribly difficult, I think. I mean, they, they did see people so seldom and, and just made entertainments for themselves. So one of the children is writing a book, a botanical book that he hopes to get published one day. That's his big dream. Hester's just overcome with the amount of work that she has to do. To She's effectively the family maid and nanny and everything else. Mm. And, um, yeah, they somehow fill this time but the work of the farm and maintaining that the 
the household drudgery would have been oh, all consuming. Oh, washing. We're doing the washing. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> oh, golly. So, Hester, everybody was there for nearly seven years. Um, and, of course, in that time, the family dynamics change. They grow up. The two older boys leave. Where do they go to? Uh, the two big boys run away overnight mm. to the goldfields of Victoria, as so many other South Australians did. It was a huge problem for and South Australia. Albert, the younger brother, he, was, he didn't run away. He was basically sold off to pay off a debt yes and yeah he he was he it's a yeah it's actually a family story that my great 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 grandfather sold off well he didn't sell his son but he he sent his son off to work off a debt um at another farm and and deaths within the family both of the mother and little mary three-year-old how does this change the father the death of Hester's mother, Mama, I think is a thing that sort of ossifies her father. So all of his worst qualities um, become more prominent and his softness, whatever softness he had, goes um, and he becomes more driven and more determined in a way. Obey your father. Yes. Oh, dear. And the use of religion to control. Mm. Oh. So we actually look at what a lot of this book does is question what it is to be civilised. Yes, I'm so glad that came out. <laughs> exactly. And I feel as if that's a very contemporary thing because we look at all of our politicians at the moment and I think one of the things that we're all questioning is how civilised are we, really? Yeah. A quote from um, Lucy Trelaw's book. In South Australia, we lived in the bones and skins of drowned ships. A spear could pass through a wall with ease, but none ever did, and we lived among savages, people say. Mm. Look, there's a lot. There's so many twists and turns. There's murder, there's pregnancies, there's failed business dealings, there's lies and tragedies, and it really makes quite a page-turner, Lucy Chalot. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we've got one minute for you to tell me about your AsiaLink residency in Cambodia. Oh, that was a fantastic time. Um, 2011, I think it must have been. Um, I was working on a novel at the time called The Things We Tell Ourselves and uh, had to go there and do some research. But I I lived there for a time, so for me it was... um, a fantastic return to a place that was very familiar. And, um, yeah, I just did a lot of research, quite a bit of newspaper research into the time of the Khmer Rouge era of the late 1970s and reacquainted myself with familiar places that I was writing about. And talking about writing, you've got a writing studio at the Art Arts House Meat Market. Yes, lucky oh, me. Lucky you. Lucky yes, you. I love that place. And I'm completely unlike Sophie Laguna. I would not be able to write in 50-minute verse. <laughs> I need to be in a cell. But that's what makes all the books so different mm. and makes us as readers so happy that there's so many different types of books. Yes, and it's a fantastic time. Okay, so I've been speaking with Lucy Trelaw. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.